Now, the Battle of Waterloo took place 206 years ago, and it was one of the most significant battles in British history and actually shaped the direction of what happened here in England and in Europe, indeed, for all those years ever since, really, through those 200 years. Actually, it was a battle between three armies. On the one hand, there was France, ruled over by Napoleon, one of the greatest military experts of his day. And on the other side, there were the forces of England under the Duke of Wellington. And the third party were the Prussians under von Blücher, who joined the battle at the, at the last stage and, in fact, helped to, act, helped to bring it to a conclusion with Britain on the right side. Napoleon was defeated. But before we start on the battle itself, we need to go back in time. Because the Battle of Waterloo was 1815, and we need to go back in time about, uh, about 26 years to what we call the French Revolution. And that's when Napoleon actually came to power. Let's see what happened. Uh, in the French Revolution in 1789, the people of France rose up against the, the kings who had ruled them for centuries, and also the Roman Catholic Church, which had oppressed and stifled them for centuries, kept, kept them in absolute subjection. And the people rose up uh, to overthrow the dominion of both the king and the church. And what happened, of course, as you know too well, thousands of these aristocratics, as they were called, the aristos, were executed on guillotine. <coughs> and there's a, a pretty lifelike painting of the Madame Guillotine actually in action chopping off people's heads in, in Paris, in France. So after the revolution, Napoleon came to power in the French army. He started off as an army officer in the army, but he was very rapidly promoted to become the, the general in charge of what was called the, the Army of Italy. Uh, He's only 26 years old when he became this general of the French army. And somehow, Napoleon Bonaparte had a gift for discipline of his men and also military strategy in the course of battles. And that's what brought him to fame. And at one point, he looked well as if he might be going to conquer the whole world. And that's why this Battle of Waterloo is going to be so important. To our history. Here's a picture of Napoleon at the age of 26, striding across the battlefield in his horse, uh, and he, he rises to power very quickly. Now, England could see that Napoleon and the French army were going to be a threat to the established order in Europe that had been there for centuries. Uh, and uh, as the story came back to England about these aristocrats having their heads chopped off, the French monarch being executed himself and his wife, Antoinette, and that gave great fear to the wealthy people and the rulers of England because they could see if Napoleon came across the Channel, this same revolution might well infect Britain and they would lose their power as well. So Britain declared war on France in 1803. So that's, that's where we, we and France became enmeshed in war. 
On the 2nd of December, 1804, Napoleon had himself crowned as emperor in, in France, uh, in the, the big church in Paris. Um, some, uh, yeah. Here's a picture of Notre Dame, Notre Dame. So here you can see the Pope, who was almost compelled to attend the ceremony. He didn't want to be left out. And here you can see Napoleon um, with the crown, which he took from the hands of the Pope and put on his own head. And then he proceeded to crown his wife down here, Josephine, Josephine who's bowing before him, because he's now the emperor and she's only one of his subjects, but he's going to crown her as his, as his consort. And this all takes place in the presence of all the, the, the rulers of France in Notre Dame Cathedral. So now he's emperor. Uh, I don't know whether you've heard the story about uh, Beethoven, who at this point had just finished composing his third symphony. And at first he had dedicated it to Napoleon, because you could see that this man was a, a great leader. But when he heard that Napoleon had made himself emperor, he was disgusted. And he changed the title of the third symphony to uh, Eroica instead of being named after Napoleon. Anyway, that's another, another story. So, after this then, Napoleon, having made, made himself emperor, sets off to conquer Europe. And so Britain and the other rulers of Egypt had to make a coalition to, to fight against this Napoleon. The fact is, he swept them away. He was so successful in his battles, they just melted before him like wax in front of a flame. He conquered the Netherlands, that's Holland and its neighbouring neighboring territories, in 1795. He conquered Switzerland and Spain in 1797. He made himself king of Italy in 1796, and he entered Rome in 1798. He then added Austria in 1805. This is about the point where he made himself emperor. And Austria in 1805 was the last phase of what we could call the Holy Roman Empire, uh, where Charlemagne, the great, Charles the Great, and the Pope had worked hand in hand to, to govern Europe for a thousand years. And that was brought to an end when Napoleon entered Austria and uh, defeated the, uh, the army there and made himself the emperor. So that's, that's Austria. He then went on to, to Prussia, which is an old name for Germany, part of Germany anyway. Poland came along in 1807, and eventually he got all the way to Italy and he took the Pope himself prisoner in, in 1809. Now you might like to see these two maps. This first map you can see on the screen now shows you the situation in Europe in 1797, before he'd really set out on his, on his victory journeys. So there's France, coloured in blue. There's Britain, of course, over the tunnel there. Here's Spain, <coughs> here's Italy. And this is what's left of the, of, the Holy, of the Holy Roman Empire, based on Austria, Vienna, and down here, we've got what's left of the Turkish Empire, or the Ottoman Empire, uh, which covers what's Turkey today and, and, uh, and most of what, um, and what we would call Greece here today. So that's a picture in 1797. Now, if we move on to 1807, 
only 10 years later. This is what we see. The blue of France has now stretched over practically the whole of Europe, except for Austria and the Ottoman Empire uh, and Prussia. And there's a little bit of French Empire over here as well. Britain, of course, is still there. <coughs> so far, Britain has not been taken by Napoleon, nor has Russia, that vast country over there on the east. They stood out still against the French, the growing French empire. Now, as we said before, Napoleon intended to invade Britain. <coughs> it was on his plans. He actually assembled, spent a huge amount of money preparing flat-bottomed boats to take his soldiers across the channel uh, to invade England. And all around the coast of Britain, on the south coast of Britain, the British erected big strong brick towers called um, to, to give notice from watchmen on the top if the French Navy started to come across the channel. And these, these towers, Martillo towers they were called, uh, had um, a bar seat on top in which they could light a fire so that even if it was night time, <clears throat> the message could be passed on all around the coast of England that Napoleon's on the way, get ready. So that's the response of the British against the invasion. They were really, really worried that he would come across the channel, but he didn't. And probably the main reason why he, oh, sorry, yes, there's a picture there of one of these Martello Towers. They're still there today, all around the south coast of England. <laughs> and even in, in Jersey, over the Channel too, one of our islands over there. And there's a, there's a fort inside with lots of armoury for soldiers and, and ammunition and gunpowder. This is where the, uh, the basket was on top for the fire, the, the signal fire that would uh, send the message on to the next tower and so on all around the coast. Right. Why didn't Napoleon conquer Britain? The reason really is the British Navy. The British Navy held the key to the eventual victory over Napoleon, which took place at the Battle of Waterloo. What happened was Napoleon decided to get at Britain by invading India. Because he could see that the riches and wealth of Britain mostly came from its overseas trade with these very distant countries like India. And so he decided the best thing to do was to, to stop the British going through Egypt and on into, into India. So he flew, he, he, he took his fleet of ships with all his soldiers from France down to Alexandria on the coast of Egypt and unloaded his soldiers, the army, and left the ships he had um, lining the, the, the bay of Alexandria. Well, unfortunately for him, the admiral in charge of the ships anchored the ships quite a distance away from the shore. And Nelson comes across the Mediterranean searching for Napoleon's fleet. And somehow they missed each other several times while the French fleet was in transit down towards Egypt. Napoleon was, Nelson was looking for them and they, their paths almost crossed, but they didn't actually meet. But once they had settled the ships in Alexandria, Nelson could see there was a weakness there because this gap between the ships of France and the shore allowed him to take his boats between the shore and the ships, the French ships. 
And because they had all their guns pointing outwards to sea, expecting that that's from, from which direction the enemy attack would come, he was able to take his ships very quickly on the inside of the French ships, which weren't protected by the guns. They were the guns were facing the wrong way, and so they uh, they broke into the, the the French ships and set them on fire. And here's a classic painting of what's called the Battle of the Nile. So that was in 1798, <clears throat> and that's a very significant uh, British victory for the British Navy. And then. Nelson went on to defeat both the French and the Spanish navies combined together at another very famous battle, the Battle of Trafalgar. That took place uh, in, in 1805, another seven years later after the Battle of the Nile. And remember, this battle really broke the French navy forever. It never again regained any power after the Battle of Trafalgar. It ended, in fact, Napoleon's hopes of invading Britain. But now, from this point onwards, the, the British had conquered all the seas, not only around the English Channel, but also around the, the Atlantic Ocean down to, through and down to the Mediterranean. Now, uh, this is a, actually, the, the labeling here is, is in French, in Spanish, sorry, but you can see there, French, I'm sorry, yeah, Hispania. You can see there, that's where the Battle of Trafalgar took place. And there's the Straits of Gibraltar. This is the Mediterranean here. So that's where the battle actually took place. And here again is a, a famous painting of the Battle of Trafalgar in, pro, in process, in progress. Um, you may have heard the story of the Battle of Trafalgar. Nelson knew that there would come a time when he would have to fight against the French Navy and the Spanish Navy combined together. And that was a big obstacle because his Navy was smaller than theirs combined. But he knew that the French and Spanish Navy when it came to a battle, would be stretched out in a great long line. And what they used to do in, old, in the old days was to line up the, 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 the two, two navies opposed each other, would line each other up side by side. So you had two lines facing each other, and they were bang, 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 until most of the ships had gone on one side and the other side, and they, they, they then surrendered to the other side. But because Nelson had fewer ships than the French, he knew that wouldn't work. So he told his admirals to come down on the French line at right angles or at an angle and break right through the line of the enemy ships in two places to chop them up into three sections. And then having gone through the line, they were to turn sideways and that would allow quite a number of English ships to attack one or two French or Spanish ships and hammer them bang, 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 bang until they surrendered. <coughs> and that, that stratagem which he explained to his generals before the battle took place, his admirals before the battle took place, that worked. We did, in fact, defeat the French. <coughs> so this picture here, an ancient painting or drawing, shows the French and Spanish army there on the right-hand side of that picture. And here's the British Navy coming into the fleet at two points to break it up into sections. And that's victory, the, bat the battleship from which Nelson directed the battle, uh, which is still, of course, in Portsmouth, and you can visit it today. So that's, him, that's them breaking through the enemy line, and <laughs> you can see the cannon hammering away at each other. So, as a result, Britain alone was still left standing against the French. All the European powers 
had really collapsed before him, apart from Russia, of course, and the East. So that gave Britain, under Nelson, the power to blockade all the ports of France. So that meant that they couldn't take goods in from other countries and they couldn't take goods out to sell to other countries. And that actually crippled the economy of, of France <clears throat> because they stifled their trade. And it also, of course, prevented any other naval attacks on Britain back home uh, in, the, in the English Channel. So that's the, the, the work of Nelson and, and the British Navy and how it then crippled the naval power, the sea power of France. All the subsequent battles took place on dry land. Well, this is the point, this is the point, my friends, at which we come across Bible prophecy. You might say, well, what's all that got to do with the Bible? Well, the fact is, the Bible is full of predictions or prophecies made by God's servants, the prophets, in the Old Testament, and the apostles in the New Testament, predictions about the future. <clears throat> Because God loves the people who, who put their lives in his hands and trust him. And he, set out, he sets out for us all in advance the history of the world. You might think well, that's a bit, a bit amazing, but in the book of Daniel, for example, we have the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which sets out in Daniel's time the forthcoming empires that would rule the world right up to the birth of Christ in the first century. So you have Babylon, followed by the Medes and Persians, followed by the, uh, the Greeks, and then the Romans, the four great empires that succeeded the time of Daniel. And that all came to pass, exactly as Daniel had predicted. And then at the end of the New Testament, we have a whole series of prophecies which take over from where Daniel left off, the time of Jesus, and take us right through to the kingdom of God at the end. And that great book is the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible, and it's an amazing prophecy because, as we say, it's telling future events from the time of the Apostle John right through to the, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this, this, this vision that the Apostle John saw on the Isle of Patmos, where he was in exile, is it, presented to us as a series of trumpets being blown, like signal trumpets. There's seven of them. Seven trumpets. And when the last trumpet blows, that's the kingdom of God. It's the time of the kingdom of God. So let's just have a quick look at the introduction to Revelation, just to prove this point we're making. It's the opening verse of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. That's John the Apostle, the, the, the brother of, of James, John and James. We read about in the New Testament. So God gave the vision to Jesus. Jesus gave the vision to his angel. The angel gave his vision to John. And John writes it all down for us, God's servants, uh, so that we can know the things that must soon take place. It's a prophecy. Well, we can't go through the whole book of Revelation, of course. But actually, chapters 11 and chapter 16 of Revelation cover the period of Napoleon. As we saw before the French Revolution, the Roman Catholic Church 
And the rulers of Britain, and uh, rulers of most countries, sorry, not Britain, rulers of most European countries, controlled by the Pope, for centuries they had persecuted the Protestants. What's a Protestant? The Protestant is somebody who's protesting. He's protesting because the Roman Catholic Church stopped people reading the Bible. So that nobody could understand what the Apostle John had written down because the Roman Catholic Church suppressed the Bible and persecuted and put to death, indeed, thousands of people like us who wanted to read it and preach the gospel from it. So that's been going on for centuries. And um, do you know what it says here in chapter 11, verse 3? God says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Clothed in sackcloth because, well, traditionally, prophets always wore a garment of sackcloth. <clears throat> and when they have finished their testimony, says, says the angel to John, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now, for three and a half days, three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb to be properly buried. What's all that about? God's witnesses prophesying in his name. Well, these are the Protestants, the people who <coughs> were saying to people, look, the Bible is where we have the truth about God and his great plan for the world and what Jesus wants us to do. And for 1260 days, that's, in Bible terms, in prophecy, you often have a day standing for a year. So 1260 days, <coughs> 1260 years, these people were allowed to prophesy from the word of God. But then they were to be stopped. The, <coughs> the beasts, whatever that means from the bottom of this pit, would kill them. And they would not be allowed to prophesy for three and a half days. Their bodies would lie on the street of the city and people would gaze at the dead bodies. <clears throat> so here's my little picture. Here are the two witnesses. Actually, it says in Revelation 11 uh, that they would have power to bring down fire from heaven and to turn water into blood. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you'll remember it was Elijah the prophet who brought fire down from heaven to destroy the prophets of Baal. And Moses turned the water of the Nile into blood in opposition to, to Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. So the Bible has taken those two examples from the Old Testament and using them as an illustration of how these two witnesses through this long period of 1260 years will be able to defy and witness against the evils of the prevailing church. So the Protestants, during a period from 800. 312, approximately, that's when, that's when uh, the, Ro the Roman Emperor Constantine <coughs> insisted <coughs> that his empire must be become Christian. From AD 312 onwards, the Christians who had been bitterly persecuted by the previous emperors who worshipped idols were now set free to say what they wanted to say without being killed, without being persecuted. And for 1260 years, up to 1570, they were able to carry on doing that. But then they were to be put to death, says this prophecy. They would die. 
uh, and so here's my little picture. Those two prophets who so valiantly prophesied on behalf of God over this long period, obviously it's not, it's not individual men we're talking about, it's, it's groups of men who pass on the baton, so to speak, from one generation to another through that long period of 1260 years. These faithful witnesses, like people like us who were Protestants against the Roman church and its iniquities, lay dead in the street. They were put to death. And actually, thousands of Protestants like us, all the way across Europe, were killed in the massacre of St. Bartholomew, and the date's 1572. Now, in the, in the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685, all religious freedom was taken away from Catholic Europe. You had to be a, you had to be a Catholic, and if not, you'd be put to death. There was the Edict of Nantes which said, yes, you can have religious freedom. But in 1685, that edict was re revoked. And from that point onwards, if you weren't a Catholic, you had to be put to death. So for three and a half days, and we, we think that has to be around about 105 years, you can't have a day for a year here because, well, you, you can't have dead bodies lying in the street for, for three and a half years, uh, for people looking at them. So we have to multiply up and we get to 105 years. So these people come back to life again after 105 years. You have to work it out like a day is a month, and a month is a, is a, a month of years, so it, it works out 105. And that brings us to, believe it or not, 1789, the French Revolution. And this is what it says in chapter 11. After the three and a half days, a breath of life from God enters these dead bodies, and they stood up on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw him. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. Heaven, in the Bible, represents the ruling P-class, the, the kings and princes. And the earth represents the people over whom the, the rulers rule. So they're taken up to heaven. They have the position of power once again. They come back to life after being dead for three and a half days. And the prophecy says there was a great earthquake. So the earth, the peoples on the earth, are shaken. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So this great earthquake allows these two witnesses to come back to life again and to continue their work. There's my little picture of the sixth trumpet. We've reached the sixth trumpet out of the seventh. And you can see the earthquake in my picture, everything's falling down. Because the French Revolution changed society forever. It's never been the same since. The doctrine of the French Revolution, the, the idea of equality, fraternity, and liberty, that's so, those same principles are still revolving around the world today resulting in the many demonstrations we have against those who are in authority today. The French Revolution hasn't really finished. But now we must move on to chapter 16 that we read in the last part of this vision, <clears throat> where we have these bowls or vials, they're called, in the, in the Old English Bible. So the seventh trumpet, that was the sixth trumpet, a great earthquake. The seventh trumpet introduces the bowls, and there's seven bowls. It's as if those seven bowls are tucked inside the seventh trumpet. You understand? Well, these bowls in, in Bible times were used in the temple to pour out the blood of animals after they've been sacrificed onto the altar. 
So blood being poured out, <clears throat> pretty obvious symbol of judgment, war and judgment. So a loud voice comes telling these seven angels, pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. First angel pours out his bowl. Harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. That's going back to earlier in the Revelation, where this Roman church <coughs> is in charge of religion. So this first bowl is poured out, and these people are struck with very painful sores. There's an echo there of the Exodus and the plagues that Moses was able to bring upon Pharaoh and his people. They were struck with sores, weren't they? So it's bringing forward that picture from Exodus and saying it's going to happen again. It's affecting the people who have been ruling Catholic Europe. And this is the work of Napoleon. It was Napoleon who drove the French army to attack Catholic Europe. The second angel pours out his bow into the sea. The sea becomes like the blood of a corpse. Everything lives, living that was in the sea dies. So second bowl turns the sea to blood. We have blood poured out on the earth. Now we have the sea turned to blood. <clears throat> well, here's, here's my picture of the sea. Uh, from, um, from the point of view of John the Apostle, who lived in, in, in Israel or Palestine, the sea was the Mediterranean Sea. And we've seen how already how the British Navy under Nelson completely dominated the, the coast of Europe and all the internal part of the Mediterranean. And it brought dreadful suffering to continental Europe because it stopped all trade by sea. The British Navy blockaded all the important ports of, of Europe. The third angel pulls out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. And the angel says, they deserved it. They shed the blood of saints and prophets. And you've given them, God has given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve, says the angel. And that's very interesting. Because this third bowl <coughs> falls on what's called rivers and fountains of water. And that's an absolute characteristic of Switzerland and the Alps. Because you go to Switzerland, the first thing you notice, everywhere there's running water. And the Alps where this judgment was now going to fall, is the very place where Protestants like us died in their thousands in that period when the French, uh, the French Inquisition was, it was in force and uh, they, they were put to death. That's when those witnesses came, fell, fell uh, in the street of the city and, and died. And so the Alps, a particular area where this happened, uh, was a punishment really from God for what had happened years ago. Fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. The sun, well, think of the heavens, the sun is obviously the chief ruling body. The moon's there, the stars are there, but the sun is the chief, the head, headquarters, if you like, of rulership. And that was the, in the Holy Roman Empire, the time of the, all through those Middle Ages, that sun that scorched men with heat was, <coughs> was going to be we're going to burn these people underneath. Well, Austria was the centre of the Holy Roman Empire. <coughs> That's where the Holy Emperor, Roman Empire was reigned from all through this period. And in 1806, Napoleon attacked Austria and brought to an end 
the, the Son, <coughs> the Holy Roman Emperor. <coughs> the fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. This kingdom is plunged into darkness. Well, <coughs> the fifth bowl pours on the kingdom of the beast. We haven't time to explain in great detail who the beast was, but again, we, we have to assume for the purpose of this talk that it's the Roman church and the center upon from which the Roman church is ruled, which is Rome, <coughs> the place of the football match on Saturday night, Friday night. So <coughs> the fifth bowl <coughs> falls on the kingdom of the beast. And the Pope was actually taken prisoner by Napoleon. And he took away all his power, all his secular power to, to, to tell kings what to do. <coughs> and he had his own little empire in the Vatican was taken away from him in 1809. Well, after this lightning conquest of Egypt, the French were definitely in power. And Napoleon was now able to introduce some, some uh, sweeping reforms in Europe in matters like justice systems, education of children, and administration. If ever he can be credited with any good, he did, has to be in those kind of fields, perhaps. But in 1812, he made a big mistake. He set off to try to conquer Russia. And he took with him a giant army of 600,000 men, the biggest army he'd ever had under his command. And unfortunately for him, he set off in the autumn when the winter was coming, the Russian winter. And the Russians <clears throat> retreated before him, but attacked him when he wasn't expecting it from either side in the darkness in the snow. And in the end, even though he got as far as Moscow, and occupied Moscow, it was a hollow victory because the Russians, before they left Moscow, set it on fire and took away all its treasures. There was nothing left, really, for Napoleon to take home as a victory spoil. And the tragic story of the retreat from Russia by Napoleon's army in the middle of winter, only a hundred thousand got back to France out of the 600,000 that originally left. And here's another famous painting of Napoleon retreating from Moscow in the middle of the winter and then dropping dead all around him. Well, that was a big mistake, really. And it actually, for Napoleon, this was the beginning of the end. <clears throat> because the European nations now form a coalition to get rid of Napoleon once and for all. And a great battle took place, what's called the Battle of Leipzig, in 1813. And after that, Napoleon desired, abdicated. He said, okay, I'm not going to be emperor anymore. And he agreed to be taken away in exile to a small island called Elba, off the coast of Italy. And that's, for the time being, brought about peace. Napoleon couldn't march around uh, Europe with his armies anymore, <clears throat> he was locked away on the Isle of Elba. Actually, he wasn't really locked away because he had lots of spies. They were going backwards and forwards, bringing him information about what was still going on in France and the rest of Europe. <coughs> well, in 18, coming up now to the Battle of Waterloo, because in February, 
1815, he escaped. He escaped from Elba and he returned to France where he proposed to challenge the, the monarchy which had been restored after he abdicated. They were trying to bring back the old kings, you see, deciding, well, this revolution business isn't, isn't very comfortable. Let's go back to our old system. So he challenges the monarchy of Charles, the king who's been brought back to his throne. And as soon as he lands on the coast of France, his old soldiers, the ones he'd led about in those long campaigns all the way across to Italy, they rallied to his cause. They loved their general, and they didn't really like these new rulers from Paris who didn't pay their wages and weren't really on their side. Well, of course, that caused great alarm then. The Paris escaped. Ah, what can we do? So the Austrians and the Russians and the Prussians all agreed we must form a new army to, de to defeat this monster once and for all, to get him out of the way. But of course, Napoleon, being the excellent general that he was, he decided to strike first. He decided before those allied armies could fully assemble, he would try to attack them one by one. Well, before they had get, got together, they had one great mass army. So in fact, when it came to the Battle of Waterloo, there's only British Britain, uh, allied by a small number of soldiers from Holland uh, and, and, and Germany and Prussia, who fought on the same side at Waterloo. Now, the British army was led by the Duke of Wellington. The Duke of Wellington was already a very successful English general who led a number of great, brilliant campaigns in, in Spain. And um, he, he'd been very successful. So we now have a position where Wellington on the one side in charge of the Allied forces and Napoleon on the other in charge of the French forces come face to face. We have the two greatest living soldiers now facing each other in what's going to be the final battle. Here's the two pictures. There's the Wellington, Duke of Wellington on the left, and there's Napoleon, who by this time is over 40 years old, not in good health, and he's going to uh, squander all his hopes on this one great battle of Waterloo. Well, my friends, this is where God came into the picture because the British troops were staged by Wellington <laughs> on the top of a hill. Actually, he's very clever because he didn't have them right on the, the ridge of the hill. He made his soldiers go beyond the ridge to the, where the hill starts to fall, fall away on the far side. And that was because if the French guns were fired from the valley below, the cannon shot would hit the hill and would go over the heads of his soldiers who were hidden a little bit lower down, just beyond the, the ridge itself of the hill. And he knew that would protect his soldiers and give them more chance of survival. I should say in passing here, that the reason why Napoleon was so successful in so many of his battles was his artillery. He was brilliant at assembling huge numbers of guns to attack the opposite side unexpectedly. Uh, he also had, of course, cavalry, and uh, they were very well experienced by this time. Well, that's the British on the top of this hill, overlooking the valley of Waterloo, and they're waiting for the Prussians to arrive. They know the Prussians are on the way under Blucher, but they haven't yet come. 
And this big valley separated the English forces from the French on the far side. And do you know, during the night it rained. It rained very heavily. So when the morning came, because the ground was sodden, Napoleon delayed moving his artillery, his big cannon, and his troops until the ground dried out, dried out a bit. So, so surprisingly for the British, he didn't move his troops until midday of the day of the Battle of Waterloo. And you know, that gave sufficient time for the Prussians to arrive on the scene, to get to the battlefield. That delay, that unexpected delay, because of the rain. So now the, the British are stuck on top of their hill and, and together with the Flemish and the German troops on their side, <coughs> they faced charge after charge from the very heavy French cavalry and foot soldiers. They managed to hold out until evening. You probably know, you might not know, but you, you may have read that um, battles in those times were fought like this. If the enemy was firing his guns at you, you set your soldiers out in a long line, straight line. So if a, if a cannon ball hit somebody, it would only hit him and would then go to waste. But if you were being attacked by cavalry, that would be no good because the cavalry assaulted were straight through your line, turn around and kill you. So when, it, when they were going to be attacked by cavalry, the soldiers were assembled into a square, many soldiers deep both ways. And they all had pikes, very long spears with long blades pointing outwards. And the, the cavalry such horses will be afraid of trying to break through that line of steel. <clears throat> so the French guns will stop firing once their cavalry got so far up the hill in case they hit their own soldiers on the, on the horses. At that point, the British would assemble into a square and repel the cavalry. When the cavalry um, were, were hit by musket shots from the British soldiers one after the other, they retreated down the valley and the guns started again. So the British sent their men into a straight line again. That's how it worked all through the day. And all this time they were waiting for, <coughs> for the Prussians to come. Here's a picture, another famous painting of the French cavalry charging uphill against the British lines on top. And you can see the, uh, the soldiers, the infantry, who were supposed to follow the cavalry up the hill. Well, eventually the Prussians arrived on the scene. And they were able to attack the right flank of the, the French army. And at this point, Napoleon, seeing that everything was about to be lost, he sent in the Imperial Guard. Now, these, these veteran soldiers have been held back in reserve. And now he throws into the battle the Imperial Guard themselves, who'd never been defeated, and they would never surrender. That was they were sworn never to surrender. He sent them in to, to save the day on the side of France. But they were repelled and they, they had to retreat. So the Battle of Waterloo came to an end with, with thousands upon thousands of corpses on both sides, French and, and the, the Allies. You see this horrible picture here <coughs> of the last phase of the battle. What happens next, of course, is that Napoleon himself retreats and he abdicates again a second time. And this time he's, he's sent to exile a long way away from France. Saint Helena, which is an island right in the center of the Atlantic Ocean, and Napoleon's work was finished. Here's a little picture of uh, this is Africa on the right hand side, there's 
South America on the left-hand side, and this is the island of San Helena, where he's now exiled until the day of his death. He did die several years later, uh, and uh, experts today think actually he was poisoned because they found huge traces of arsenic in his hair and his body, uh, which shouldn't really have been there. Anyway, that's the end of, effectively, the end of Napoleon. So the French Revolution started a new era in Europe, that began in Europe, and is still spreading worldwide today. People overthrowing those who ruled over them. British Empire broke down as these countries became independent. That idea is still going on today. Those, that, that uh, little liberty, equality and fraternity, that little swan song of the revolutionaries, which abolished hereditary power, handed down to you from your ancestors and making you an earl or a, uh, a prince, now elevates the people above church and state. And the result was, and this is fantastic for us, the result was at last people could read the Bible and find the truth about God because the Roman church wasn't stopping them anymore. And the seventh trumpet concludes like this. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, we've seen the end of the sixth trumpet. We've seen the effects of the French Revolution rolling around the world today. And at the end of the sixth trumpet, the Lord Jesus comes. The angel blows his trumpet and the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of God, the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And he reigns forever and ever. So let's just summarize some of those interesting points we found. First of all, it's very obvious <coughs> that the Bible is able to predict the future. If God says it will happen, it happens. We see that God controls history. He's able to manipulate Men, not God-fearing men at all, but great brains like Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament or, or Napoleon in the, the, the 18th century, 19th century. He's able to move these people about like pieces on a jigsaw, on a chessboard, wherever he wants them to go. <clears throat> and sometimes he can intervene in the course of a battle to make sure the right side wins from his point of view. Because without that brain, that delay, Napoleon would have sacked the British line before the Prussians arrived, and that would have been the end of the Allies. It would have meant that Napoleon would have continued to be an emperor, and his rule would have been spread all over Europe and unrestrained. And that would have been a very different world to the world we have today. Sometimes God allows evil to triumph for a while. Sometimes it's to test the faith of people like us, to see if we can still believe when things go wrong. But then eventually, when his time is right, God uses a nation to bring judgment on his behalf. And Jesus is going to bring the final judgment of God in the day of his return. That's when the kingdom, the kingdom will be here. Now, I just want to finish <coughs> with a sort of little anecdote um, here, because my wife Catherine and I live in a place called Wellingborough in Northamptonshire. And about uh, five miles from where we live, uh, at a village called Findham, there's this strange round tower alongside 
it's actually the A509, a main road. And I drive past it many times because my, my son-in-law happens to live the other side of Findham. So we drive past this strange structure at the side of the road. It's made of brick, it's a round tower. And if you look carefully at that inscription on the side, it says, Waterloo victory, June the 19th, June the 15th, sorry, AD 1815. <laughs> well, the story here is the Duke of Wellington was very friendly with a very rich man who had a big house in just at the other side of Findham. The house is still there today. And he would entertain the Duke of Wellington uh, and his wife. They got on really well. The two families got on really well with each other. So when Waterloo was over and uh, Wellington had brought this great victory, um, they built this tower. And it's interesting because when Wellington went to stay with our, our friend, uh, this, this, uh, this local land, land, landowner, he happened to remark one day that the view from his land across the valley reminded Wellington of the Battle of Trafalgar, a Battle of um, Waterloo. And that's why his friend built this tower in memory of the great victory of his dear friend, the Duke of Wellington. Anyway, that's, that's the end of my story. And thank you for listening. I hope it's given you something to think about, you know, how God works in the kingdoms of men. <laughs>